0: Before we begin, I would like to offer an explanation and an apology for the absence of podcasts for a number of weeks. Ohio Yearly Meeting started eighth month second and concluded on the sixth. A lot of preparation went into that gathering and this drew our our attention away from our podcast series. We should have offered some warning about the break in publications and we hope to do so in the future. We will mention now that there is also work to be done now that yearly meeting has concluded, and we must ask for additional patience as we try to resume to a regular schedule.
1: We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention.
2: This is the Fundamental Beliefs of Conservative Friends, What We Are Conserving. This is session number 20. I'm not going to go into academic kind of discussion of some of the things I want to bring up today, but just sort of point them out to people. We'll be speaking about truth and deceit, pride and plainness and language and dress and related kinds of topics. For those who are new here, please, if you have questions or comments, I don't usually look at the chat while I'm doing this, so just speak up at some point if there's something that you feel needs to be said. Okay, this word truth is a very important word in the history of France, especially in the very earliest generations. It occurs throughout their writings. So often, I think I should say it should be put with a capital T in modern English. Even in the Bible, especially when you're reading something like the gospel according to John. I know in many translations, it's just a small T, but, but they're talking much more, those writers of the gospels and epistles, than just truth in our ordinary sense. They're speaking about the divine living spirit of truth. And that is a divine concept, a divine entity that we're speaking about. I'd like to just read right from John, right away, a verse that has come up quite frequently in the last couple of weeks for me in various discussions, and this is John 14, chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus is speaking in response to Thomas, who is asking him, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. i like to just translate that, my own translation from the original Greek, and expand it, amplify it a bit. I am the way to God the Father. I am the way to the kingdom of God. I am truth. I am ultimate reality. I am divine, eternal truth. And I am life. I am eternal life. I am that kingdom of God. No one comes to the Father except through me, only through this divine spirit of truth that is potentially in everyone as a seed. If you know me, if you experience me, you will know my Father also. If you are aware of and have that knowledge, that experience of that seed of God, that Christ within, that anointed one, you will know my Father also, God the Father, creator. It's a very important word. I do want to say also, for those who aren't familiar with what the original says, the original word for truth in Greek also means reality. Let me just share that. Those who are in the Greek Bible study course on Mondays, second days, have heard me say this many times. The word for truth is aletheia, and that means truth. It also means reality. And that might be important in terms of understanding the biblical verses at times. And the same thing with the word true, it also means real. Early friends understood truth in this divine sense, this living spirit, this current, this divine living current that we call truth or the spirit of truth. And that was opposed to deceit. You had truth and then you had deceit. If you go back to Genesis, and I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3, where it speaks of the fall where Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying God. And this is verses 1 through 7. I should say something about the serpent. In the Mideast, the serpent was a symbol of wisdom, of earthly wisdom. And you still see that in part when you look at a caduceus. If you ever look at this medical symbol of this snake or serpent wound around a pole, that was a symbol of earthly wisdom in medicine. It didn't have necessarily a negative connotation, but it was just worldly, earthly kind of knowledge. Anyway, from verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of that tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, This is the first instance of deceit, this evil that was opposed to God. And Adam and Eve, I should also say the word Adam in Greek, uh, Adam goes back to the Hebrew Adam, which means mankind or man uh, in in Hebrew. When Jesus speaks of himself as the son of man, you could translate that as son of mankind or son of Adam. It'd be equally correct in, in modern English. Son of Man in itself sounds somewhat strange, I think, for an English speaker if they've never heard of it before. But it's Son of Mankind, Son of Man, Son of Adam. In early Quakerism, the word truth was a synonym for Quakerism, for Quaker beliefs. You could be a child of truth, a member of truth, a follower of truth. Again, with the capital T here, because we're referring to that divine, eternal spirit of truth. And that was opposed to deceit of all sorts, worldly deceit especially in so many arguments that early friends had with other denominations, with the Anglicans and Presbyterians. They were speaking of the long dark night of the apostasy, how Christianity had changed over hundreds and hundreds of years from what it was in its original purest form in the first generations. And this was the long dark night of the apostasy. Apostasy meaning a separation a belief in more than one, a number of incorrect doctrines or teachings. I say incorrect because the word for orthodox, orthodoxy, in Greek just means correct or right, and doxa means, among other things, opinions. So having the correct opinions, the right opinions, that is what is orthodox. So you find this word truth throughout. You just can't avoid it in reading early friends' writings.
1: Would the story of the snake be the first signal that we should be taking some of these stories spiritually rather than literally? Because the snake told the truth literally. They didn't die physically.
2: Yes, the death that is being spoken of there is a spiritual death, a death to being united to God and experiencing God as they did in the Garden of Eden. I think George Fox himself says somewhere in his journal that Christians, the true Christians today of his time too, should have that experience of Adam and Eve, but go even beyond it in terms of their ability to experience God, to be in union with God. And it's obvious in many ways, if you look at it at Genesis, I'm thinking also God is walking in the garden with them. I don't know how literally you can take God walking around in the Garden of Eden. Obviously, it's a story that has a meaning way beyond any literal sense you can give to it. Of course, I think what we're looking at here in this fall, as it's called, is the cause or the reason for why we each in ourselves at some point as we grow up are deceived by the world, deceived by Satan, and fall into sinning. We have that proclivity that we've hadn't handed down to us to do that. But of course, friends do not believe that young children sin. Although at some point, it seems like what we do know is that inevitably they sin at some point. I'm not sure if I answered that question correctly, Karen. Thank you.
1: Yes, very well. Thank you.
2: Yeah, just another comment. Actually, there are two creation stories in Genesis. Uh, Many people are not aware of that. But if you read the text more clearly, you'll see that. Anyway, let let me go on. This was the sin of egotistical pride. You can become gods if you ate this. You can have that kind of power that you can't get any other way. They were happy with God, but there was this temptation, this urge to be like God, but not doing it the way God wanted them to do it, but following this earthly wisdom that the serpent represented. When we talk about plain speech, I'm just going to give some simple instances of how truth was so important to early France and traditional France in terms of even everyday things. All you Quakers here know, plain speech involves a number of things. The days of the week numbered one through seven. First day being what the world calls Sunday in English. And our days of the week are are basically mostly gods and goddesses. The God sun, the moon god, the sun god, Thor, for Thor's day. Woden is Odin or Woden's day and so forth. Saturday is Saturn. So we have all these gods if you are a follower of truth you do not believe in these pagan gods why should you be using them so friends were using numbers which has become quite common anyway in our english-speaking world to number months which is the same issue going on with the 12 months instead of naming them after gods, so genua and mars and or roman emperors julius and augustus or naming them after numbers that don't correspond anymore September was actually the seventh month in the old calendar. We number them as Quakers. One third aspect of plain speech had to do with the use of the pronouns thou and thee versus ye and you. In older English, Middle English, Older English, ye and you were the pronouns that were used only for more than one person. If you were speaking to two or more people, you used ye as a subject of a sentence and you as the other form. Thou and thee were used only to speak to a single person, one person, singular number. What happened were a couple of things. One thing was that the nominative, the ye, got replaced by the you, so that you was used in all forms for the plural eventually. So ye just completely dropped out. And with thou and thee, the thou was likewise a nominative form, subject of the sentence, and that was completely replaced by thee. So what you had was thee and you, ye and thou were eventually lost in English. However, what also happened was that, especially in the southern dialects of British English, ye and you began to be used to speak to one person if that person was in a social status higher than oneself, whatever that may be. It most likely began with royalty and nobility wanting to be looked at that way. And it became eventually so prominent that, again, this is in Southern English dialects, that it was offensive. just We Quakers began to use it afterwards with the thou no longer being used. So you had this social distinction that was built on a kind of social pride, as a social egotistical pride that because I'm in a high position in the government or in business or whatever, I should be addressed with ye and you. Friends were opposed to this completely for a number of reasons. One was that if you look at the Bible, even in just a bit earlier English, there was none of this kind of language being used so that there was a polite form for a king or queen being addressed and something else. This sort of thing has happened in a number of languages in Europe and elsewhere in the world, sometimes in very different ways. But friends, because of their being sticklers for truth, Their yay-be-yay and their nay-nay felt they could not do this. It reeked, I should say, of pride and egotism on the parts of those people who wanted to be addressed that way, and they rather go back the earlier English, which caused them a lot of problems. Also, just one other comment here on the grammar. We say the sees or the has or the does. What looks like a third-person singular form of the verb, But actually, in in some English dialects, the S represented a singular form versus the plural. And you still have a kind of a frozen expression like, so says I, and that's with an S there. And this was more common. Nancy Hawkins actually just sent me something last week, forgetting the man's name, Hall, where I think he says, thou goes, G-O-E-S. And you can see that S there rather than the uh, earlier goest. But that's just another form of the singular. People think it's a third person, but it isn't. The S eventually supplanted like goeth and seeth and thinketh and doeth and all that. I've seen people have some really mistaken beliefs of how this linguistic change occurred. And this can get very complex in some languages. I don't know Korean, but I understand in their verbs that there are seven different levels of this kind of politeness. Depending on where you rank compared to the person you're speaking to, it can get pretty complex. Of course, friends felt this was just pure egotistical pride when it came to English. Henry? Yes. Why do you think it is that friends continue to use thee and thou and then the rest of society went with you instead? There are still some dialects in Northern England that use a form <laughs> of the word yes. thou and thee. Sarah shaking her head. Yes, uh, I do. <laughs> It's pronounced like tuh rather than thee or thou, tuh, but it's that singular form what's left of it. And I do know that someone was telling me that when he was in school in England, this is someone I know, it was kind of drilled out of him not to use that form. Actually, reminding me too, I think it's Spanish spoken in part of Chile in South America. They've lost that second person singular form as well, and they use the plural form now, just like we do in English. So you get variation of kinds of how languages change over time. There's a linguistic term for this. This is all called politeness, a socio-pragmatic linguistic change. This has to do with politeness, phenomena, and whatnots. Friends have kept it. I think, in part, it was kept as a family kind of thing. You'd still use this language with your family and with fellow Quakers. Today, I'm not sure what the percentage of conservative friends still use it. I will use it with other conservative friends. I, I don't want to be misunderstood when I speak to people who may not understand the, and so I'll just use you. And it's kind of a mixed bag for me right now when I'm in a group like this, and I don't know <laughs> sometimes who's who. And I get kind of mixed up myself. But uh, I'll use the you if I'm speaking to anyone outside ordinarily. But I'm just thinking of some other languages I can speak or know of. These phenomena vary considerably, but in many cases it has to do with pride, egotistical pride, as to how they may have grown up historically.
1: Henry, I was just going to mention that currently, as we're going through discussions around gender pronouns to be used in our society, I think thee and thy are
2: very welcome right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's fascinating because there's so much misunderstanding there. I'm putting on my linguistic cap right now, of he and him and what that originally was in terms of marked and unmarked linguistic categories. She was marked for femininity. He and she was unmarked. He and him could be used to either refer to a male or a female. But with the feminist movement in the 20th century, they wanted he and him to only refer to a male, even though in the last thousand years of English, it could refer to both when you're speaking generally. Just like the word man, Originally, in Old English, meant a human being, but eventually, it also began to refer only to a male. So that in the English of George Fox, the word manhood meant humanity. It did not have its modern meaning, which only refers to male. There's a lot of other things to talk about that, but that's a whole different time.
3: (laughs) If we could go back to David's question just a minute, why did you take over? It's really a reverse process. Liberal civilization has wanted to elevate everybody. And as a society of deference decayed, all this kind of language became general. It hasn't been that long ago that most people would not be referred to as Mr. and Mrs. Mr. was a title. Master. Right, from master. And Mrs. was the mistress of the household. Right. If Thomas Jefferson was running for president in 1800 or 1802, whichever it was, he might have ridden up to the old inn door, and Sam would jump down off the porch and run over and hold his stirrup for him to get down, and he'd say, Good afternoon, Mr. Jefferson.
2: And Mr. Jefferson says, Good well, afternoon to you, too, Sam. How's it going? Maybe just to make this clearer... This is a complex issue, and it varies in very different ways in the history of many languages. I'm thinking outside of European languages. Chinese makes no distinction between he, she, her, him, it. It's all one word. They don't make that distinction, and they have no distinction between singular and plural. You know by context. I mean, you have ways of expressing it more specifically if you want to, but normal Chinese is just one word. and that's it. We in English have this system that we inherited from Proto-Indo-European. I was telling, I guess, some of this group here, somewhere else, there is this Australian language up in the northeast of Australia. It's called gerbil. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, gerbil, where they have several grammatical genders. Linguists don't talk about genders because of the confusion. They'll talk about noun classes. But there are four different noun classes or genders, if you want to use it here. And one of them is a class that has in it words referring to fire, danger, and women. And, you know, you say, well, how that happen? Who knows? <laughs> Most languages make a distinction between animate and inanimate. We in Europe don't have that distinction, really. It's a fascinating topic, and it's an interesting topic. You don't know where languages go sometimes in in strange ways. I'm just thinking of the word guy. You can say you guys to a group of women today. I couldn't have said that back in the 50s. There would have to be males to be you guys. Plain dress, clerical clothing. What's interesting in the history of religions is that those who are more devout, more devoted to God or gods seem to get frozen into a certain way of dress. I'm thinking specifically when you're talking about friends, they did not want to be slaves to the fashions of the world that constantly are changing in dress. This was not the kind of slavery they approved of. What you see even today in the clothes of various Christian ministers, priests, monks, nuns, they wear their various clerical garb. So often, even if they vary, like among nuns, I think, or priests, uh, monks, they look different because they were the standard clothing of whatever time that particular order began, and it was frozen in time because they were not going to pay any more attention to constantly being concerned about how to dress to be modish in whatever modern world that they were in. So that is how Friends too had the same sense, did not feel they should be slaves to fashion. That is why we have clothing that is considered plain clothing. But even today among conservative friends, I think even if they're not wearing that kind of clothing, you probably won't find many frills or very loud colors among any conservative friends. You need to remember that in the 19th century, with all the splits and breakups that happened among Quakers, none of those had to do with clothing or plain language. It was all over doctrinal kinds of issues, mostly. They weren't fighting over whether you should wear this or that piece of clothing, or speak this or that way. That's important to remember. This had to do with seeing yourself as separate from the world, and this was an external way of showing it. In some ways, it may help, I think, as some of us still may wear that kind of clothing. And it may be an inner help, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that case. If you look at early Greeks and Romans, you could usually, it depends on the clothing of the time, but you could usually immediately tell if someone was in Roman nobility or whatever, because they were wearing the color purple, which no one else could wear. I understand that, I don't know if this is true for how long, but at times slaves could not wear shoes or sandals. There are these kinds of ways of telling people right away as to what their status was in society. Of course, even in the 19th century, there was a woman Quaker minister who uprated Joseph John Gurney for wearing his plain clothing, but it was like the finest kind of cloth possible, you know. So he was kind of not keeping true understanding of why he was wearing what he was wearing. There is another kind of plainness that has to do with humility, humble behavior. Let me actually read something from First Peter Let's see, it begins with verse 9 in chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's only people. The older word is peculiar, a peculiar people. In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, the sense of being a special people, a peculiar people. Peculiar used to mean special or appropriate, belonging to one's own, one's own people. That's what's being said, God's own people. It did not mean odd or peculiar in the modern sense. That's important to remember because I've seen people misunderstand that. Words have changed their meanings. They are constantly changing their meanings over centuries. So humility there is a kind of simplicity, a kind of uh, thing to be aware of in terms of truth. As it says in John 15, 15, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Friends called themselves friends because they were friends of Christ. But there was also this other expression they used, and that was they would call themselves friends of the truth. Which, of course, is the equivalent of saying friends of Christ, because the truth is Christ. That ultimate reality, that divine entity is Christ, is the Messiah, is the anointed one, is the anointing. Actually, it's the anointing. If you go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 in chapter 2 of 1 John, I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and it is true and is not a lie, it's truth not to see, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. This anointing within is another way of looking at the anointed one, the Christ within, the light of Christ within, the spirit of Christ That is the whole focus of our Quaker religion, is this anointed one, this anointing within.
3: That passage you just read is Fox's whole pastoral theology. You know, that's the whole thing.
2: Yeah, that's right. Let me just share the screen again. Christos is the Greek word that means anointed. And of course, we get our English word Christ from it. And the word for anointing is Chrisma. We're talking about the same thing here. The anointing within, Christ within, it's just a different way of looking at the same thing, whether you personalize it as the Christ or have a non personal way of looking at it as something purely divine, something beyond having a personal kind of thing, and that's the anointing within. So, as I was saying, truth is a synonym for Christ Jesus, the synonym for God, it's the Messiah, it's the anointing within. We also see see this in other kinds of testimonies we have. For instance, we refuse to take an oath because in terms of truth, this would be setting up a double standard, that when we take an oath, we should be more truthful, more honest than than what we should be doing all the time. It's interesting if any of you have done any reading among early <laughs> Christian writers of the first two, three centuries. This was a very important thing. It comes up more surprisingly than not, at least in what I've read. And I wouldn't have thought this was that important, but it was that you really had to be honest, truthful in everything. Even in terms of choral singing, friends felt that you could not sing together, say, a song in worship, because you would have to have both people in the same spirit and in unison with the words of whatever hymn they are singing. And that would be difficult, I think, to find. So that's kind of choral singing would not be allowed. There's a number of times in Fox's journal, I remember, for either it was eight times or 13 times, I think I read that he does break out in singing. But there is this important understanding of being truthful in terms of if it's words like from a psalm or whatever, that you are feeling that or I have a deep understanding, a spiritual understanding of what you're saying as to how you're feeling or how you've felt, and that's important. Okay, uh, the Bible. I won't talk much about this, but other than this interesting point of this fact that friends often refer to the Bible as the Holy Scriptures of Truth, Truth with a capital T. We're talking spiritual divine truth. That does not mean necessarily that everything written in the Bible is literally true. What matters is spiritual truth, divine, ultimate reality kind of truth. In the same respect, France never called the Bible the Word of God because the only reference to the Word of God you find in the Bible is the reference to Christ Jesus, to Christ as the Word of God. And this word is the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S, which has many meanings, but one basic meaning is it refers to anything uttered. So Jesus is the utterance of God, the expression of God. God's expressing himself in Jesus. And the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible speaks of the word of God in so many places, Old and New Testament. So friends have never referred to the Bible as the word of God. But we do speak of the word of God in the Bible. Okay, one more quote here. This is from John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Knowing the truth is experiencing that ultimate reality, that divine spirit of God. Of course, the Jews here are understanding Jesus more literally. They say, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. Well, of course, they've been slaves throughout their history to (laughs) all sorts of people, Babylon and and the Syrians and whatever. But the point here I'm making is that um, it's this kind of understanding of being a slave to sin rather than a slave to truth. A completely devoted, willingly, voluntarily devoted to being a slave of a God of love, a God of truth. So it's unconditional, 100%. That's why I think the word slave is used. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Again, here what's being spoken of is being free from sinning. If you are in that light within, that light of Christ within and No longer a slave to sin, but a complete devoted slave to justice, to love, to compassion, to God. I think that's about all I have to say. Uh, I can go on with talking a bit more for a few minutes on what we've already talked about. Any comments? I'd
3: like to throw in that wonderful Fox summary of the truth thing. Uh- Lewis Benson says somewhere that 79 times or 70-some times in his writings, Fox says something similar to the whole human task is to know, love, and do the truth. And the truth is Christ, the gospel and power of God. I just feel like once you find one of those statements, you know, something on that order... There is no need to look any further on that point. That really does, I mean, you were really hitting it hard all the way through there talking about truth. And I think that's just such an important summary of it.
2: Yeah, the word is so critical. It occurs so many times in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel and Epistles of John, but elsewhere as well. And if you reread these passages, also keep in mind the word reality and think of divine reality there too because I think that will help give it clear. I mean, doing the truth, and uh, how would you translate that? Acting on the truth. That's kind of the understanding I have of the Greek. And that's important, performing what is true, what is right. It's it's essential. And again, the the deceit is there. It's the sad history of Christianity to see how gradually over centuries there was this gradual departure from that truth that was understood in those earliest generations. So that eventually, you know, you had uh, Crusades and the Inquisition and all the other horrible things that are there in the history of Christianity. It's the same thing that's happened, I think, in the history of Quakers. Uh, they've not been faithful to the truth that they once had. Of all these splits and divisions and whatnot that have happened among Quakers in the last couple of hundred years, you know behooves us to really sink down to that seed within us to really work on reminding ourselves what we believe in and acting on those true beliefs. I keep saying, as earlier friends have said, conservative friends have said, that we are a religion of the spirit. Other denominations may say that too, but they add so much else to it. I think it's very important for us to keep that in mind. I just want to remind people too, I I want to thank you for those who have sent suggestions to me or asked questions about future topics. I have at least a dozen more things to talk about that I'd like to, but I'm thinking also some of these might be very short things like a short paragraph and just discussing a certain paragraph from either the Bible or from a writing of a friend, Quaker, some point that I think seems critical for us. Well, I think
1: there's something about the truth that requires an inward uh, transaction in yourself. You can hear a statement that somebody else makes, but you don't accept it as truth unless you evaluate it within yourself. So the truth requires a kind of inward action. I think that pursuing the truth or honoring the truth is something that's a very high human activity. There isn't any other creature on earth that can honor the truth.
2: He's reminding me of something in the first epistle of John where it says, God is light and there's no darkness in him whatsoever. You could say God is truth and in him there is no deceit whatsoever (laughs) in a very similar way. I also should say that when we're talking about truth, sometimes there are variations of this meaning. You know, I've studied Russian, and there are two main words for truth in Russian, and I've never been able to completely understand the difference. A speaker understands the differences, but I don't completely. One is probably, you know, the word Pravda. Pravda, which was the name of a communist newspaper. And there was a joke back in Soviet times about Pravda, the newspaper Pravda, Party newspaper, Communist Party newspaper. And then there was Istina, uh, which was another word for truth. But this word Pravda was the name of the paper. There was another government paper, Izvestia, which meant news. And there was a humorous expression that they would use saying, Pravda net Izvestia, Izvestia net Pravda. In Pravda, there's no news. And in Izvestia, there's no truth. But it was a pun on those two words. I just want to make it clear that when you're talking about truth in English, we just have this single word. And maybe in some other language, there may be a variation on truth, truthfulness, or whatever. But here, when we're talking about this truth with a capital T in the New Testament, we're talking about that divine reality, that divine truth, that total truthfulness. All right. Thank you all. And see you again on second day or next fifth day. Bye, everybody. Bye, Miss. Bye, -bye. Bye.
1: Henry. We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention.
0: This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from Margaret Fowl's letter to the king on persecution in 1660. The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's work can be found at paulettemeyer.com.